0: Connecting life and faith. This is Connections.
1: I think that's one of the hardest things when you go through a season where you you can't feel God's presence, and it
2: doesn't feel as if God is saying anything. We're joined today by Sheila Wall. She is the author of more than 30 books that have sold nearly 6 million copies. Her latest book is Holding On When You Want to Let Go. Today on Connections, Sheila shares candidly about her mental health journey before and through the pandemic. She encourages the millions struggling to hold on and to live in the love of God. Sheila Walsh joins us today. She's the author of over 30 books that have sold nearly 6 million copies. She's also the co-host of a television program that can be seen across the world today on Connections. She's sharing with us about her mental health struggles in hopes of helping others. Sheila, for those who don't know, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I live in Dallas, Texas now
1: in the States, but I'm originally from the West Coast of Scotland. I came to America when I was probably about 26, I think. I came as a contemporary Christian artist, but um, after some time, I was invited to become a co-host of a program called the 700 Club with, with Pat Robertson. And so I did that for a bit, about five years. Um, and currently I, just I host a show called Life Today with James and Betty Robeson, which I love because I get to do not just the on-air stuff, but the mission stuff. So I get to go to Africa and watch our feeding programs being set up. I get to go to um, Phnom Penh, Cambodia or Bangkok and, and work with our young girls that have been rescued from tra- sex trafficking. So I really am mm-hmm. in a very grateful season.
0: And not only, you know, television and music, but you're, well, I think prolific is a fair word, prolific author. Uh, You've written so many books, and now you have a brand new one out called Holding On When You Want to Let Go. Uh, You're really passionate about this new book. Tell us why.
1: Because it really came out of a struggle in my own life. When the pandemic hit um, beginning of 2020, I was, I was doing fine for the first few weeks. I mean, it was honestly kind of nice. I didn't have to be on the road speaking every weekend. I could stay in my jammies. I could, didn't have to wear makeup. I could binge watch the great British baking show, all that good stuff. But then I found myself kind of spiraling again. I had been diagnosed with clinical depression in 1992, but it was pretty well under control. I was managing really well. So finding myself Spiraling and waking up each morning with kind of a feeling of heaviness or dread was a bit of a shock to me. So I began asking the Holy Spirit, How do I live in days like these? Because I don't, I knew how to live when life was what I assumed would be normal, but this is so different. And so it was really my own search. When I felt myself sinking, I didn't want other people to. So I wanted to write something that would give hope to people who were struggling in a new way.
2: Now, you were talking about your depression there for a brief time. In that time, you actually um, were in a psychiatric hospital. Your depression wasn't just depression. This was severe.
1: Yeah, it was severe clinical depression. I, was, I spent a month in a psych hospital, which was kind of a bit of an, a nightmare for me. My father, his diagnosis was different. He had a, a major brain aneurysm, which impacted his personality, and he became quite violent. So he um, he was taken to a psych hospital where he escaped and, and drowned himself. Mm-hmm. And when I was really little, I used to say, when I, want, when I grew up, I want to be just like my dad. Because before his brain aneurysm, he was just this amazing, loving, kind, adorable dad. But then at 34, same age as my father, when I ended up in a psychiatric hospital, I remember thinking, well, this is kind of what you wanted. You wanted to grow up to be just like your dad. And well, here you are.
0: Um, is it scary to be so open about your mental health? I mean, you're Sheila Walsh. You're a Christian television host, a Christian author. You're a CCM artist. CCM artists aren't allowed to be depressed, are they? Is is it kind of scary to be so open?
1: Honestly, Mike, I'm at that age where I don't really care what people think. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> and honestly, it's really out of the fact that I know that so many people struggle in silence. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, this is... You know, there's still so much stigma attached to any kind of mental illness, particularly in the church. And I just want to say to people, you're not alone. You know, some severe depression and, you know, all sorts of different mental illness. They're not technically curable, but they're treatable. And I want people to know that they can get help.
2: Why is it such a taboo topic all these years later and after we've seen um, different people go through struggles and whatnot? Why is it still that thing that nobody wants to talk about? You know, I think it's the fact that if you had a brain tumor, you know, you could
1: show someone an x-ray and you could get a worldwide prayer meeting going on that. But the fact that mental illness doesn't show up on an x-ray, and a lot of people confuse faith with brokenness, faith with being human, faith with living on a planet where not everything is, is perfect. You know, people tend to think, I remember in my first few days or weeks, people would say to me, well... You know, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. And I thought, absolutely, that's true. But if somebody fell off their bike and broke their leg, you wouldn't say to them, you can do all things through Christ, so get up and walk, unless you have an incredible ministry. And if you do, wow, that's awesome. You would take Mm -hmm. that person to get help. And But I think because Mm -hmm. mental illness isn't really understood, I think there's a lot of genuine ignorance about what real mental illness truly is. It's a lack of chemicals, not a lack of faith.
0: Uh, In your book, early on in the book, I love one of the excerpts here. Every single thing I was trying to control, you say, was out of my control. What have you learned about control through this journey?
1: I think I've learned the most basic lesson. I never was in control. I think we like to think that we are, that we have control over certain areas. And when life gets a little scary, you know, I mean, I... I found it hard watching the news. I still do some days because so many people were impacted. You know, my family in Scotland were severely impacted by, by COVID and, you know, everything kind of closing down and, and it feels as if life is out of control. But it, it made me dive deeper into, into the word of God, into the Bible. And one of the things I started doing every day, and I still do, I did it today, is that I will read three Psalms out loud. Because I think it's good for my ears to hear what my eyes ah. are reading. You know, it's like declaring this is what I believe to be true, no matter what I might be feeling at the moment. And that's really been so helpful for me.
0: Well, I think the Psalms really powerful. We see a lot of times where David and other authors of the psalms maybe were depressed themselves, right?
1: Oh, absolutely. In fact, I read this interesting quote by a guy who's kind of looked on as the a, as a Psalms expert, his name is Phillips, but he said that whereas most of scripture speaks to us, the Psalms speak for us. It's uh-huh. like they give us, they give us a language of lament, of questioning, of joy, of hope, of grief. And, and that's why reading the Psalms out loud is really powerful.
0: Uh you, one of the interesting things I've uh, seen you say people have asked you if you're fixed or healed now <laughs> how do you respond to that
1: I mean it's a great question I understand it but I say no I'm not fixed it's much better than that I'm I'm redeemed when you find the presence of God in the midst of your brokenness that it's never been about me getting all right It's about, you know, Christ who is right, who makes us right. You know, when I was studying for another project I'm working on, I discovered some old tax documents, kind of from the era of the first century of the church. And written on them was the word that Jesus cried out from the cross, Tetelestai, it is finished. And on the tax documents, it meant bill paid in full. And that's what I take great comfort in that Christ is already paid our bill in full. So we don't have to be fixed, we can be held.
2: You also talk about holding on and letting go. Obviously, that's in the title of your book as well. Um, But you say they go hand in hand. Tell us a little bit about what you mean by that. Yeah,
1: it sounds like a little bit of an oxymoron. But what I've discovered is, like my husband and I went through um, a time when financially we were really struggling you know a lot of our events had been canceled a lot of things have been canceled but our son was still in grad school we wanted to keep him there you know we sponsor children through compassion we wanted to, to keep that going and so it was coming up with this realization that the one thing that I had that I could sell and clear all our bills was was my engagement ring and I knew that would be a huge deal for my husband but I remember saying to him you know there was times in the first years of our marriage when I needed to keep looking at that ring to remind me that this was what I'd chosen. But saying to him, I don't need that anymore. You know, we can let go of certain things, knowing that we've been held by God. So even though that was kind of tough for us as a couple, it was actually a really strengthening moment, letting go of things that don't matter as much, knowing that we can hold on to God who's holding us.
2: That's quite the story. That's... uh... I don't know many people that could do something like that. I know it's just a piece of material, but there's a whole lot of meaning behind it as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and I, I didn't want to hurt my husband's feelings, making him think that I thought less of it. So I said to him, listen, you stay home and, t- and pray about it, and I'm going to go get coffee. And so I remember sitting outside my favorite coffee shop and just saying, you know, Lord, what do we do here? And I felt like, you know, our life is the life that Barry and I have built together so much more than than, than a diamond ring. And and so when I, when I got back home and I said to him, I really think this is the right thing. And honestly, I mean, we both shed a couple of tears that day, but it was just this ultimate confidence that I don't hold on to a home or a car or any things, you know, that I know that I can hold on to Jesus in the midst of
2: anything. And I know that he will never, ever let go of me. What do you do when God is silent, when that's not there?
1: I think that's one of the hardest things. When you go through a season where you you can't feel God's presence and it doesn't feel as if God is saying anything. I remember before I was admitted to a psych hospital years ago, I didn't know what was wrong with me. So I remember taking 21 days and fasting and praying and just saying, Lord, if there's anything in my life that's unpleasing to you, please tell me. And at the, at the end of the 21 days, There was no condemnation, but there was no comfort either. It was just the silence of God. And I think we all go through seasons like that when we want God to speak into our situation. But I I read a thing by Warren Wearsby the other day, one of my favorite writers, and he said that we live by faith and not by explanations. And at times I want an explanation, but I think that's why we're called to live by faith because sometimes God is silent, but it doesn't mean he's not there. I believe God is always with us, but at times for reasons known only to him, he is silent in our lives.
0: I was uh, reminded uh, just the other day about the story of Elijah in 1 Kings 18 and 19. And Elijah has the showdown on the mountain with Baal and their other gods, right? And they can't light the fire. And then God lights the fire and he has this biggest ministry win ever. Yeah, And then immediately Jezebel comes after him and and he retreats and he says to God, I want to die, basically. And it just really struck me like even Elijah, literally a mountaintop experience with God still feels like giving up. And God came to him and didn't judge him. Instead, God said, sleep and eat and provided for him.
1: I know. I I love those two chapters I've read over and over because, you know, after this great miracle and then hearing that Jezebel's coming, it says that Elijah left his servant behind. And he didn't have a servant because he was wealthy. He had a servant because he was in ministry. It was like Mm -hmm. him saying, I'm done. I'm out of ministry. And then basically says, I want to die. And the fact that God says, you know, because it's one of those, it's a Christophany. It's one of those appearances of Christ in the Old Testament. And the fact that Jesus told him to rest and then made him lunch. I mean, he, he gets us. He gets our humanity. And he does, again, take another nap because, or, the, or the journey ahead will be too much for you. God understands our brokenness.
2: When it comes to mental health and dealing with it um, in the church, um, there's not always the best supports. We're working on that more and more every day. But what's the best way that a church can support someone who is dealing with um, a mental health issue?
1: Honestly, letting people know it's okay not to be okay. You know, our church, I spoke, my pastor asked me to speak a little bit about my struggle with clinical depression. And I think he was honestly a little blown away after the service to see how many people said, you know, I've been struggling with this for years, but I didn't know I could talk about it in church. So we've actually brought a pastor onto staff who that's his, that's his role. You know, he, he helps work alongside those who are struggling. But I think just even acknowledging this is a real thing, it doesn't mean you don't love God. Um, and that telling people it's okay and that maybe a support group, you know, where people can come and share their experiences. You know, when Paul wrote to the church in Galatia, he said, bear one another's burdens. Some things are too heavy to carry alone and we need each other.
0: Uh, You mentioned turning to scripture and we've talked lots about it already, but I'm just wondering when you are in, you know, those um, pits of despair, of depression and feeling stuck, what are some scriptures that you cling to and remind yourself of?
1: I think one of my favorite, favorites comes at the end of Psalm 27. You know, I used to, when I was a kid, I memorized the first verse, you know, the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? But when I ended up in a psych hospital, I thought I'm afraid of everything and everybody. And at night, it was always worse. Like in the middle of the night, I would feel these lies of you're never going to make it. You're just like your dad. You'll never make it out of here. And I would literally get out of bed and plank my feet on the floor and, and repeat from the end of Psalm 27. But I believe I will live to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And my favorite chapter in the whole Bible is Romans chapter 8. You know, It starts with no condemnation, but it ends with, I'm convinced that nothing can separate me from the love of God. And the, the tense that Paul uses there in the Greek is, I was convinced and I remain convinced. Because when he was converted in Acts chapter 9, I was pretty dramatic. But when he's writing to the church in Rome, it's almost 20 years later. He's been beaten and left for dead. He's been stoned. He's been imprisoned. He's been starved. He's been shipwrecked. And he's saying to us, I was convinced back then, and I am still convinced, nothing can separate us from the love of God and Christ.
2: Now, if we have a listener right now that's tuning in and is listening to this saying, no, I I just don't see the light. I don't know how to keep going. What would you say to that listener and in ways that they can cope?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's that's a very real, real thing. First of all, I would say you're not alone. So often we think it's about our effort. You know, when we feel like life is somebody turned the lights off and we just don't know what to do. You know, we try and fix things. And sometimes we can't. One of the things I've learned to do is when my son was five, I remember we would fly through Chicago Airport one night. And he was marching on ahead of me and then he just stopped and he he didn't say anything. He just lifted up his arms and and I could hear him. I was his mom. He was saying, mom, I'm tired. So I picked him up and I held him. And, you know, some mornings that's what I do. I go out in my little balcony and I lift up my arms and I've lifted up my arms before in in worship. And this is not really like that. It's like saying, you know what, Lord, I'm tired. I hold up my arms and I know that my father holds me. So I would just say, you know, Know that God is with you. He is for you. Walk outside and look up to the sky and raise your arms and know that your father is holding you.
2: For those who want to learn about you, about your book, how can they go about doing that?
1: Um, Well, my website is just SheilaWalsh.com and on Facebook it's Sheila Walsh Connects and I'll often hop on there and do a Facebook live so we can just kind of talk to each other and pray for each other and connect that way.
0: Well, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. A real treat for us and our listeners, I know.
1: Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Colleen. I loved it.
2: And thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe. We'll talk to you again on Connection.